Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Drew Crime. I'm your host, Drew V, and for this episode, I will be covering the unsolved murder case of Teresa Insano. On Wednesday, October 27, 2004, 26-year-old Teresa Elizabeth Insana did not show up for work for her executive sales job at the Rio Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. As the next day approached on Thursday, co-workers from the Rio became very concerned about Teresa's absence from work, so they decided to go over to her home and try and locate her. Once they were able to get inside her home, they looked everywhere, but the only things they were able to find were Teresa's dog, some of her personal belongings, and her car parked in the garage that just so happened to have a bloodstain on the back bumper of the vehicle, but there was no sign of Teresa. After her co-workers were unable to find Teresa anywhere, law enforcement was then notified. Once law enforcement arrived at Teresa's residence, they were able to conclude that there was no forced entry into her home, but law enforcement was able to find other clues that suggested she may have been attacked, to which I will get to here shortly as I get into Teresa's story. So after no sign of Teresa, law enforcement canvassed the entire neighborhood, and then after coming up short in these searches, about six days after Teresa disappeared, her body would then be discovered inside a culvert near a golf course about three miles away from her home. Teresa's body was found lifeless, wrapped in towels and blankets, and some duct tape and rope had also been used as well. An autopsy later on would show that Teresa had died from strangulation and blunt force trauma and they had also suspected Teresa may have been sexually assaulted as well, but they were unable to definitively confirm this actually occurred. So the questions here are, who did this to Teresa, and why? Well, as this story unfolds, we learn that maybe Teresa's recent previous relationship with an ex-fiancé and a possible love triangle could be plausible reasons as to why this happened to her. And even though these avenues have been explored by law enforcement, in the end, no one has ever been charged with any crimes relating to Teresa's death. And the suspect pool has always been minimal at best, even to this day. Then in 2017, 13 years after Teresa's murder, a new technology was used in this case to try and predict what Teresa's killer may possibly look like from DNA that was found in her home and that was also found on her shirt. And even though this technology was able to compose a sketch of the killer, to this day, no one has ever been able to identify who this person is, and the mystery surrounding Teresa's case still remains. So please join me on the rest of this episode as I introduce who Teresa was, then I will cover the rest of Teresa's story, and then I will talk about some possible theories that surround this story before I close out the episode. This is an unsolved case that has very little coverage over the years, besides a Dateline episode that aired back in 2011. So I really want to help bring some more awareness to this already horrifying story, and by bringing more awareness to this case, it just might help lead Teresa's family and law enforcement in finding some of the answers and justice they have long been seeking for many years now. This is Drew Crime, Episode 16, Teresa Insano. When you return to Boulder, you will sit down with the Boulder police? Absolutely. Absolutely. We want them to know everything possible. Everything. Whatever they want, whatever anyone wants, we will cooperate. Do you remember the first time that he physically hit you? Yes. Please tell the jury about it. Slapped me across the face. And I laughed. 
I laugh because I, I didn't know what else to do. I thought, this must be a joke. I said, you think it's so funny? You think it's funny, bitch? You think you're a funny bitch? And he slapped me again. Now, a few things before I introduce Teresa. I just wanted to let everyone know where I found my information on this case and where you can find it as well. Again, this case hasn't been covered a whole lot, so there is some information out there about this case, but not much. So with that being said, check out the Dateline podcast episode called Lost in Sin City, or you can even check out the articles Dateline has done on this case, to which both links can be found in my episode description box. There are also a few other local Las Vegas news articles that provide information on this case, and they too will be listed in the episode description box as well. If you are someone that is new to the podcast, my Drew Crime episodes can be found on many different major platforms, and to name a few, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Music. My full episodes can also be found on YouTube included with video presentations, and you can also find me on TikTok where I like to publish trailers for any of my upcoming episodes. Now with that out of the way, let's go right ahead and introduce who Teresa Insana was. Teresa Elizabeth Insana was born on January 20th, 1978, and was raised with her younger sister Mary Beth in Niagara Falls, New York, and was the second of three children to her parents Joe and Anne Marie. According to the Teresa Elizabeth Insana Memorial page on Facebook, as a child, Teresa was not only an honor student, but she was also involved in student council, national honor society, varsity tennis, cheerleading, and was a passion and dancer for over seven years. She was the type of person that would do anything for the ones she loved, and many of her lifelong friends became her extended family. After graduation from Niagara Falls High School in 1996, Teresa attended Bingington University. She received her Bachelor of Science degree in Psychology in 2000. She was a member of the cheerleading team and of Delta Phi Epsilon Sorority. After moving back to Niagara Falls for a short period of time, Teresa decided it was then time for her to start a new journey in Las Vegas. She set out to create a life and develop a career in sales, and Teresa started out at Harris Hotels before going to the Rio Hotel and Suites. Her strong work ethic and determination helped her become promoted to Western Regional Manager for all corporate events in 2003. Teresa lived alone in a home in Summerlin, a suburb of Las Vegas, with her sweet puppy Frankie before her murder. Shortly after Teresa's murder, her family set up a scholarship in Teresa's name, and from what I understand, Teresa did not have a high-risk lifestyle that would put her in any type of danger, so it really does become even more puzzling as to why someone would ultimately take this young woman's life the way that they did. So to start Teresa's story, I'm going to start on Tuesday, October 26, 2004, which was the day before Teresa failed to show up to work at the Rio Casino. That Tuesday, Teresa worked at the Rio, and then after work, she voted at a local church around 5.30 p.m. Then after arriving back home, she talked to her mom who lived back in Niagara Falls around 6.30 p.m. Her mother stated on Dateline that Teresa said she was tired, she was going to eat her macaroni and cheese, then she was going to rest, and that Teresa would talk to her tomorrow. At 7.30 p.m., a friend of Teresa's Grace or her cousin Angela called Teresa back after Teresa had called one of them and left a voicemail about her day, but Teresa's phone would go unanswered. 
and I'm not quite sure which of these ladies she had called due to conflicting reports, but either way, one of these ladies did call Teresa back during this time. So then the next day on Wednesday approached, and this was the first day that Teresa did not show up to work at the Rio, which was completely unlike her. And then it happened again the following day on Thursday, and this is when her boss and other co-workers grew concerned. So then a few of her co-workers decided to go over to Teresa's house and check on her. Now, real quick, one of the co-workers who went over to check on Teresa that day was her ex-fiance, Jeff who had broken off their engagement just a few months before, and I will be talking about Jeff a little more here shortly. So after Teresa's co-workers and ex-fiance were able to get inside her house, there was no sign of Teresa, but her dog Frankie was present, as well as some of Teresa's personal belongings that consisted of her purse, her keys, her cell phone, and her car that was parked in the garage, to which I had mentioned earlier had a little bloodstain on the back bumper. So with Teresa still nowhere to be found, her co-workers called 911. After law enforcement arrived at Teresa's home and looked around the house, they were able to suggest that there was no sign of forced entry, but they did find some other clues such as a piece of metal towards the bottom of the stairs, which does end up coming from Teresa's shirt she was wearing that night. There was also a large footprint much too big to be Teresa's that was found on the carpeted steps leading upstairs. Just steps away from the stairs inside the bathroom on the second floor, law enforcement then noticed a towel rack that looked to have been ripped out from the wall. And there were also a few spots of blood found on the baseboards and the mirror, which later on would be matched to a full unknown male profile. In the garage where Teresa's car was left, law enforcement noticed the driver's side seat was pushed way back, which was a little unusual given the fact that Teresa was only around 5 feet tall. Law enforcement was also able to find blood in two spots on our car, one spot being on the back of the bumper, and more blood was found in the trunk of the car along with some mud, and these blood spots would later come back matching to Teresa and Sana. So after not being able to locate Teresa anywhere, law enforcement then canvassed her entire neighborhood, which also included horse-mounted dog and cadaver dog searches as well. During this time, there were also vigils being held for Teresa's return, and the family was also doing the same thing back in Niagara Falls. Then after having no luck in coming up short in these searches, about six days after Teresa disappeared, her lifeless body would then be discovered by some construction workers inside a culvert near a golf course about three miles away from her home. Teresa's body was found lying in some standing water and it had been wrapped in some towels and blankets and there was also some duct tape and rope that had been used as well. There was also some blood found on Teresa's shirt that would later come back to matching the blood found in her bathroom from just days before. Law enforcement then notified the family shortly after it was confirmed that they had found Teresa and then her parents immediately got on a plane and were in Las Vegas by the following day. Now I'm going to go ahead and stop the story here for just a few minutes and talk a little bit more about Teresa's home. And right after that I will briefly talk about the location of where Teresa's body was found. Then I will pick up where I left off in Teresa's story. So law enforcement had stated that there was no sign of forced entry into Teresa's home. And a big reason for this is because the back sliding door was said to have been unlocked. And this is probably how her co-workers from the Rio were able to get inside when they went over there to check on her. 
Now, with the clues that were provided inside Teresa's home, law enforcement was able to theorize that she was most likely attacked, and their theory involved the perpetrator coming through the unlocked backsliding door. Then a struggle would ensue on the stairs leading to the second floor, which then spilled into the bathroom. This is when investigators believe Teresa was able to rip the towel rack off the wall to fight back against her assailant. And in doing so, Teresa was able to strike her assailant, which would then explain their blood spots that were found in the bathroom and on her shirt. Law enforcement then believes Teresa was murdered and loaded into the trunk of her vehicle where her blood was found, and then the killer disposed of her body underneath the culvert where she was later found. And after this was done, the killer then returned her vehicle back to her home. Another thing law enforcement noticed during their investigation is that Teresa's attacker had taken the time and methodically cleaned up the crime scene, even leaving out paper towels, trash bags, and bottles of cleaner on the kitchen counter. So if this person took their time cleaning up the scene, were they not worried about someone else noticing them or disturbing them while they were doing so? Or even a better question, did this person possibly already know who Teresa was? and knew they wouldn't be bothered by anyone else at this time. Whoever this person was, law enforcement believes that they attacked and murdered Teresa anywhere between 6.30 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. Tuesday night. Because remember, Teresa spoke with her mom around 6.30 p.m., and then her phone would go unanswered later by either her friend or cousin around 7.30 p.m. Also, Teresa had told a close friend that was visiting about six months before in May of 2004 that Teresa would come home sometimes and that the TV would be on a different channel than she had left it on, or the DVD player would be turned on. Teresa did not have an alarm system or any cameras in and around her home, and Teresa's neighborhood was considered to be a safe neighborhood. Although nothing was ever stolen from Teresa's place, it must have been an eerie enough feeling for Teresa to tell her friend about it. So now I just want to just briefly talk about the culvert where Teresa's body was found underneath. Now a culvert is basically a drain pipe underneath a road that channels water from one side to the other. According to law enforcement, this culvert had a rough terrain with rocks on the side of it that sloped around 25 feet downhill, making it a little bit of a struggle to even walk down. Detective Hefner, a detective on Teresa's case, was quoted saying, the location of the culvert was, quote, on the outskirts of the rapidly developing southwest portion of the Las Vegas Valley, unquote. He stated that it was accessible by developed roads, but that the nearby area was full of land being leveled for development. He was also quoted saying, quote, nobody would have any reason to go into that culvert. I don't know if an average-sized person can even stand up straight underneath it, unquote. Now, like I had mentioned before, Teresa's body had been found wrapped in towels and blankets, and her killer had also used the duct tape and rope as well. Well, it turns out that law enforcement was able to conclude that both the towels and the blankets were from Teresa's home, but the tape and the rope that were used as well were not. So this means that Teresa's killer brought those other items with them, so I think it's fair to say here that Teresa's murder was most likely not random. Also, law enforcement does have conflicting views whether or not this murder was a one-person job or not, and this can be contributed by the location of where Teresa's body was found and the rough terrain to get it there. Other investigators that have looked into this case were also conflicted on this as well. 
Now, when it comes to who may have done this to Teresa, in these types of cases, we always look towards the husband, boyfriend, or in this case, the ex-fiance, whose name is Jeff and that I spoke about earlier. Before I start talking about Jeff, I do want to remind everyone that he has never been charged with any crimes relating to Teresa and Sana's death, and the full male DNA profile found in Teresa's bathroom and on her shirt did not come back to matching to Jeff. And in my opinion, this does become important in one of the main theories that has been suggested in this case. Now, according to the Dateline episode, Jeff was a 30-year-old divorced market analyst at Caesars Entertainment who is associated with The Real. Jeff and Teresa met at work and were engaged after two months of dating in 2002. Then they were engaged for a year before Jeff broke it off in March of 2004, which was about five weeks before their wedding was scheduled to happen the following month in April back in Niagara Falls. Others close to Teresa said Jeff always seemed to be always under the weather. He complained about headaches, stress, panic attacks, and was really considered to be a homebody. Jeff did live in that same house that Teresa did when they were together, but after he broke things off, he moved out and he found an apartment that was around two miles away from where Teresa's body would later be discovered. After Jeff had ended things, Teresa was heartbroken and devastated. She even considered moving back to Niagara Falls before she received her promotion at the Rio, but during this time, Jeff seemed to move on pretty quickly from Teresa and actually started dating a 23-year-old named Melissa, who also worked with Jeff and Teresa at the time, and later became aware she was pregnant with Jeff's baby just days before Teresa's disappearance. One weekend, two weeks before Teresa's murder, Jeff agreed to take care of Teresa's dog and then slept over at her house while Teresa was working overnight at the Rio. Well, apparently this did not sit well with Melissa, and Melissa admitted this made her a bit uncomfortable because in her words, Teresa had always, quote-unquote, guilted Jeff into doing things while they were dating, and Melissa felt like Teresa was continuing to do that, but that she also felt sorry for Teresa because of how hard the breakup was. Here's a quick clip of Jeff's interview with law enforcement that can be found on NBC News, and investigators think Jeff seemed like he didn't really care, describing him as acting almost flat-like but Jeff claims that this was due to some anxiety meds that he had been recently taking. I, I just don't think I've been able to process everything that's happened. Um, I mean, are you the type of person that doesn't get upset? I mean, do you just, I, I mean, here's you, you're this mellow guy, no fluctuations, you know, tell me why that is. I'm just, I mean, I internalize a lot of stuff. Um, it's just, uh, I mean, I got the phone call about Teresa, you know, maybe a half hour before you guys called. I don't, I haven't had time to think. No, but even the other day when I talked to you, you were, you were the same way as you are right now. And to me, it might be, maybe it's that you're over-medicated or you're taking too much medication and, and you're just like that where you, you can't comprehend, you know, you know, how, how you're displaying your emotion. But right now, you're not displaying to me that you're very upset over this whole thing, and I want to know why. I, I don't know. I don't have, I don't, I don't always express my feelings for a while. <coughs> 
Did you have something to do with this? So both Jeff and Melissa were interviewed by detectives, but from what I understand, they had a very solid alibi during the time of Teresa's murder, and their alibi was that they were out car shopping, and this has even been confirmed by the dealership that they were at. About four months after Teresa's murder, Jeff and Melissa returned to the homicide division to take a polygraph. When both asked if they caused Teresa's death and if they knew she was dead before her body was found, they both showed deception. Now, just because they showed deception in their responses doesn't mean they weren't telling the truth, but showing deception is considered a failed test that does come from either the machine or examiner conducting the polygraph. Also, investigators thought it was pretty odd that Melissa didn't seem concerned at all with what happened to Teresa in her interview, and even during Melissa's polygraph, she suddenly grew upset and walked out of the session. I personally am not a huge fan of polygraphs and their results, but when it comes to this case, it does become a little more interesting. I just wanted to point out here as well that one of Teresa's friends was told by Teresa two days before she disappeared that Jeff and Teresa had a pretty big argument recently. But when asked about this by law enforcement, Jeff told investigators that this argument never occurred. Also, Jeff didn't want to interview with Dateline when they reached out about this case, and Melissa never even responded for comment. So with nothing connecting Jeff or Melissa to this crime, Teresa's case would remain unsolved, and the only break in this case would come from a phenotyping technology in 2017 that I had mentioned earlier at the beginning of this episode. So in 2017, still no one had been charged with anything relating to Teresa's death, and law enforcement had no new leads in this case. Then, a new phenotyping technology was introduced in this case, and it was called Parabon Snapshot. And basically, this technology would create a sketch of physical traits of what someone would look like based on their DNA sample. So when the results came back, the sketch created showed a male of Filipino descent. And although this seemed like a new place to start, Unfortunately, over the years, this particular sketch has never been helped to identify anyone connected to this murder. So at least for now, law enforcement has Teresa's killer's DNA in the system, and hopefully one day they will get the match they've been patiently waiting for for many years. Now this is where I will go ahead and conclude Teresa's story, and now I'd like to get into the small amount of theories that people have about this case, and then I will finish out the episode. So even though Jeff and Melissa exhibited some strange behavior at times, I think we are able to conclude that they were not present during the time of Teresa's murder, and this can be contributed by their confirmed alibi and the fact that the blood found in Teresa's shirt and in her bathroom did not match either one of them. Now, just because someone wasn't present at the time of the murder doesn't always mean that they were not still somehow involved, and this will lead me into my first popular theory. So there seems to be a strong consensus that because no one close to Teresa has ever been linked to this crime, Teresa's murder may have been the result of a murder for hire. I personally feel this to be the most plausible theory in this case, and I'll explain why. Now the fact that the killer brought the duct tape and rope along with them tells me that this was most likely not a random act of violence. In fact, due to the killer's movements that night, I speculate it was all too thought out to be random. 
the fact that the killer took their time to try and clean the crime scene, and the fact that the killer then later disposed of Teresa's body using her car before returning back to the scene really tells me that this person knew they had time. And in my opinion, the only way they knew they had time is because they knew who Teresa was. Now, I'm not saying that this person knew Teresa personally, but I do speculate they knew what her daily movements and routines were. So the question here is, why would someone want Teresa and Sana dead? Well, since Teresa didn't have any known enemies or live a high-risk lifestyle that would put her in any type of danger, I, like many others, speculate that the reason for Teresa's murder may have been the result of someone else's jealousy towards her. I think one reason that could be plausible would be that someone was jealous of Teresa's new promotion she received at work, and according to Dateline, this promotion was only given to her just one month before she was murdered. So did someone else get passed up on an opportunity and decided to seek revenge? Or could it be that someone just didn't like working with her anymore? Another plausible reason is that someone was jealous of Teresa's relationships with other people. I understand that there was a little love triangle in this story, and though it has never been proven that this was the reason for all this, I still speculate that it could be very plausible in this case. I found a theory on Reddit that a person posted, and I wanted to share it with everyone because I found it to be quite interesting. This theory is from the username KittyCatB, and it reads, I wonder if the police took a close look at Melissa's close male friends and family. It's pretty clear she had a grudge against Teresa and resented her keeping in contact with Jeff after the breakup. It wouldn't be the first time someone has enlisted the help of a friend or family member to harass someone or help get rid of someone. It could have started as stalking to try and get her to move back home, and when she decided to stay, things escalated and she was murdered. Now, what made this theory interesting to me was in the last part when the person stated it could have been started as stalking to try and get her to move back home, and then she's decided to stay when things escalated and she was murdered. And I'll explain why I feel this way. Remember, it was about six months before Teresa would disappear that she told one of her close friends that she started to get the feeling that someone was coming into her house when she wasn't there. And again, Teresa felt this way because of her TV being on a different channel than she had left it on, and also sometimes her DVD player was turned on for no reason as well. Now, if these things were occurring when she wasn't there, I speculate that it is possible someone was messing with Teresa at this point in time, which according to the timeline in this case, these weird occurrences would be happening just shortly after Jeff broke off their engagement back in March of 2004. Then it's been said that Teresa even had thoughts of moving back home after the breakup, but she would end up staying in Vegas due to her promotion at the Rio in September of 2004. So with that being said, I speculate that this Reddit theory makes a lot of sense here, and I do think it's possible someone was watching and messing with Teresa to try and scare her away months before her death. But once she ultimately decided to stay in Vegas, then the stalking escalated and soon became murder. Another theory that makes a lot of sense in this case is that Teresa was being stalked by someone random, and this particular person had taken the time to observe Teresa's daily routines. So they were then able to figure out the best time to attack her, and they also knew that they had time to dump her body and attempt to clean up that scene after the crime was committed. I personally don't speculate this theory to be as plausible as the last one, 
but from what little clues that have been provided in this case, I still do speculate it to be a very strong possibility. Teresa's sister Mary Beth was quoted saying, quote, Someone maybe had some type of obsession with her, and she just wasn't even aware that they were there in her community, or someone who could have been close to her and was jealous and just did not want her here anymore, unquote. In a Las Vegas 3 News article, one of Teresa's friends said, quote, I think it's either number one, somebody was jealous of her and didn't want her around anymore, or number two, it was a random person who developed some kind of affection for her or some kind of obsession with her and was watching her for a long time. This person knew that time was on their side and they were not in a rush. It's somebody who knew her habits, knew her routine, and knew that she would be alone, and they had time to clean up. Unquote. So as to these theories, again, I do find both of them to be very plausible, and I do speculate whoever it was, they planned carefully to execute this murder, and they had some strong motive in doing so. So in conclusion to this episode, I think for this case to move forward, law enforcement will need to get a hit on the killer's DNA that is in the system, or someone who knows something about Teresa's death will have to start doing some talking. It's now almost been 20 years since Teresa was murdered, and other than the phenotyping technology that was used in this case to create a sketch of the killer, there just hasn't been a whole lot to go off of from there. Hopefully one day, Teresa's friends and family will receive the answers they've been waiting for for years, but unfortunately, Teresa's dad would pass away back in 2021, and that's really sad to hear knowing that he left this earth without knowing who was responsible for his daughter's murder. So if anyone has any information regarding Teresa and Sana's case, they should contact the Las Vegas Metro Police Department at 702-828-3521. They can also contact the cold case voicemail line at 702-828-8973 or email coldcasehomicide at lvmpd.com. Now I want to go ahead and thank everyone who tuned in to another episode of Drew Crime, and also a huge thanks to everyone who continues to support this podcast. Again, please check out the Dateline episode Lost in Sin City that does a great job covering this case, and remember to share Teresa's stories with others and help bring some more awareness to this already perplexing story. And on the next episode of Drew Crime, I will be covering the very questionable case of Kendrick Johnson which I will have here published in the next few weeks. So on that note, my always friendly reminder, love everyone, but trust no one. I'm your host, Drew V, and please join me on the next episode of Drew Crime. <laughs>